Hello, and welcome back to A Functional Approach with Dr. Jim Cheltis. I, of course, am Dr. Jim Cheltis, and today I am going to discuss a little bit about blood sugar. You know, when we look at a functional medicine case, or any kind of case, honestly, for that matter, if we're looking at blood uh, chemistry, the very first thing on most reports is glucose, right? Glucose meaning sugar. And usually, typically, it's a fasting glucose that we're looking at. So its position on the report is kind of suggestive of its importance, in my opinion. Um, and it is, because if you think about it, glucose is our primary fuel for our cells, right? Without getting into too much biochemistry, it's the molecule that goes into, you know, cellular respiration and the Krebs cycle and all that, all that business that we all try to forget from college. But glucose is the primary fuel. So if that fuel is in short supply, perhaps in like a hypoglycemia state, or perhaps there's plenty of it around, in fact, too much, but it just can't get into the cells and be utilized as energy, like an in insulin resistance or like type two diabetes, well, then the cell has deficit. The cell can't produce, it can't work, it can't do what its job is. So blood sugar, what does that mean exactly? Well, I mean, what cell are we talking about, right? How will it present? I don't know. There's some typical ones, you know, sometimes it's fatigue, sometimes it's anxiety, right? But sometimes it's it's a little bit more mysterious. Maybe it's driving autoimmunity. You know, maybe it is you know, creating an imbalance in sex hormones. And so it might be in an altered menstrual cycle or um, some kind of poor sexual function, which is the primary complaint. Um, oftentimes it's insomnia, you know, so really, like I mentioned in my first podcast, we have to look at the whole story. We have to listen and get the history and more times than not, we hear what's happening, right? I might hear somebody say, yeah, I just, I struggle to get out of bed in the morning. You know, I just keep pushing the snooze button. And I just can't get going. And, and thank God I have a coffee maker that is like automatically set and has my coffee ready because I just stumble to the coffee machine and, and get that thing down. And, and then I can get going with my day. Right? That's not an uncommon thing. And then they say, well, gosh, I'm just I'm not hungry. I'm in a rut. I just pushed the snooze button too many times. So I'm, I'm behind. I need to get to work. I don't have time for breakfast. And so I just... Uh, I just drink my coffee in the car and go. And I have I have my first meal. Usually in the, in the break room, there's like muffins or something. I have one of those at like 10, 30, 11. Um, but man, I, I'm so tired all the time, right? So you can kind of see what I'm getting at. It, it's, you know, there's this notion of intermittent fasting, which has become very popular. And, and quite frankly, it's very good for a lot of people. But the ones that it isn't good for, it isn't good for, right? We can create issues around our physiology and how we eat not necessarily not necessarily what we eat but how we eat and both actually <laughs> so um, you know in this case this person had nothing except for coffee which is a stimulant and i love coffee and i don't see too many issues with coffee for the most part but in this case it's providing for them an artificial source of glucose because that's what stimulants do it's it provides us stimulation to release those stored sugars that we have in our reserves you know um, if you're being attacked by a you know a tiger or something out in the woods 
you have an adrenaline dump, you need blood sugar fast. You need that to your brain to think clearly. You need it to your eyes to see more clearly. You need it to your muscles to run or to fight that tiger or whatever. So adrenaline is going to give that to you in a very, very um, significant way. But for the most part, we're not attacked by tigers first thing in the morning. We we have the stress of work. We have the stress of the day, perhaps the children, you know, perhaps the, the partner or the spouse. Who knows what the stressors are? But there's generalized stress. And by the way, being in a fasted state, a typical one, 10 hours, let's say, even since your last meal because you slept all night, um, that's actually a stressful environment for our physiology. Now, it's, it can be healthy stress, but in some cases, if that starts to get a little out of hand, then skipping the breakfast, not giving yourself back that sort of natural blood sugar um, from a meal source is asking more of the stress physiology of the adrenal gland system. Usually it's done with things like cortisol, which I kind of consider sort of a weak cousin to adrenaline. It doesn't make you all jittery like adrenaline can. Um, but cortisol elevation nonetheless is, is increased stress physiology. And that happens when we don't have stable glucose from our meals when we're fasting. So fasting can be fantastic. In fact, I want to talk about it in a future podcast, but um, I want to talk about the people that are struggling right now. And I don't think fasting is for everybody. So, uh, so take that case, you know, a person who is kind of highly stressed, highly anxious, always behind time. Um, these are people who are typically late places and uh, they're skipping meals. You know, they're going many, many hours pre-meals, but they are supplementing with stimulants. Um, and then typically they crave carbs. So yeah, they're going to reach for that muffin because their body is screaming glucose. They need glucose. And so what's the nice form of glucose? Well, that sweet little piece of cake that we pretend is breakfast, right? That's going to qualify. It's going to be where the cravings are. So what they're going to get then is a nice surge in blood sugar. It's going to make them feel great, just like drugs do. And because don't forget, food is drugs. It changes our physiology. Um, and they're going to have this huge surge of insulin as a response because they have nothing else in their system except for this really highly digestible, absorbable form of, of carbohydrate, which turns directly into glucose. So you're going to get a massive insulin surge, which is going to then have the blood sugar come crashing down. And then guess what happens again if they don't eat? They're going to have a surge in stress hormones, right? So we're going to get this yo-yo effect. And that's not a healthy place to be. That's a highly inflammatory place to be. It's a destructive place. That's the kind of thing that drives other pathologies, aside from making you feel crummy and unstable, right? It might taste delicious. I love a blueberry muffin. But boy, is it bad for a blood sugar by itself. So on the other hand, you have a person who wakes up, they get out of bed just fine, but they're exhausted. They don't feel rested. They slept 12 hours, maybe 10. doesn't matter. They could sleep 8, 10, 12. They could take naps. They're always tired. They tend to be overweight. They love carbohydrates as well. They always eat breakfast. But breakfast is like, you know, Frozen gluten-free waffles with lots of syrup, uh, coffee with cream and sugar, 
they also have the the muffin at work lunch might be like a bowl of pasta or you know a sandwich because they're being healthy on a big old roll of bread all right dinner lots of potatoes lots of pasta sugary drinks oh boy they love their coffees with like two pumps of caramel syrup all right this is a very very common situation i see this all the time do they exercise nah not really they go for walks with their friends twice a week but what are we looking at in that case it's blood sugar absolutely but we're looking at more of that now insulin resistance pattern in the end it all makes the same difference to the cell because glucose isn't getting into the cell so with an insulin resistance case you literally have too much sugar all the time glucose is just soaring constantly therefore insulin levels are soaring constantly because insulin's job is to basically act as a key and a lock to the cell which allows the glucose to come inside the cell and then be burned as fuel so in an insulin resistance case those little receptors those insulin receptors on the cell surface right they have had too much insulin hammering them over and over and over again that they just become apathetic and shut down and the cell actually pulls them away they they take them away they're like oh my gosh we have way too much stimulation all the time we we're gonna what we call down regulate we're gonna we're gonna lower the the responsiveness to insulin now so there you have your your descriptive term insulin resistance doesn't matter that they have plenty of glucose it's too much the insulin's too much and now it can't get into the cell so the cell is starved it's starved in a sea of glucose because <laughs> you can't utilize it right um and what happens to the glucose clearly they're eating it all the time you know it's being converted in their system they have tons of blood sugar um it then goes to the liver to be turned into triglycerides which is what we store in our fat cells so typically speaking insulin resistance comes with increased weight inability to lose weight even though they started you know jog walking three days a week and they're exercising you know in their mind and they're, they're, they're starting to change their lives they're still not losing weight because the physiology is is such that they can't utilize the energy and they're converting it into fat which is why an insulin resistance person tends to feel sleepy after meals it's one of the most telling symptoms that a person can can really tell me when they're talking about their fatigue levels and how they feel after meals so a little clinical pearl here if somebody says i ate a meal and oh my god i got all my energy back i feel great I always feel better when I eat. Well, that tells me that they came from a very low place, that they're dragging, and that, that low blood sugar dragging is like they're normal. They just kind of live that way. So they feel kind of generally fatigued and, the, you know, um, maybe brain foggy at times. Maybe their vision blurs even. Um, sometimes they just frankly get irritable or um, anxious or have anxiety or panic attacks. Not uncommon. So they eat a meal, and wow, they feel great. They got their life back. Well, that's... It's clinically relevant. On the other hand, I eat a meal and oh, I need to go sit on the couch now. Right? I need to sit down. I feel noticeable fatigue after I eat. Well, that happens because they're insulin resistant and it actually takes energy to convert glucose to triglycerides. So,
quite literally, you gain weight, you know, as you <laughs> sit there and you can't burn the energy. It's, it's, a, it's an unfortunate situation. Uh, one of the best things to do is to kind of start moving the body and, uh, and of course, lower that carbohydrate load. But uh, so those are two very separate things. Energize, energize after meals, you know, increase in energy after meals or fatigue after meals. It just kind of told us what the what the mechanism most likely is, which we can then look on the blood tests and, and confirm. The only reasonable and appropriate response to a meal is that you just no longer feel full. I'm sorry, you no longer feel hungry, you feel full. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you might have had a lot of joy out of that meal. That's that's fantastic. But but a change in energy, a change in function, that's that's pathological. That's clinically relevant. You should just feel full, satisfied, happy for yourself that you cooked a happy meal, a nice, nice, well-balanced, well-composed meal. Right. Uh, that's a, a realistic response. So um, you can have all manners of blood sugar imbalance, right? Um, I just named two, but you can actually have both. This is sometimes where like those clinicians, we, we scratch our heads sometimes because, boy, they sure seem hypoglycemic, but, but I'm seeing insulin resistance markers on the blood tests. Well, you can actually swing in such high and low directions that you can go hypoglycemic and be insulin resistant at the same time. We might just call that dysglycemia, dys just means not working. <laughs> so you can't control your glycemic response. You can't control your blood sugar. Right. You kind of treat all these people the same in a lot of ways. There might be some subtle differences in like nutraceutical approaches or, you know, supplements, if you will. But as far as the diet lifestyle goes, they're all the same. What do we do? Well, we have to stabilize the meal. We have to stabilize the blood sugar in, in a way that it doesn't go through these huge surges and dips requiring massive amounts of insulin or massive amounts of stress hormones just to stay stable. So simply put, we have to lower the carbohydrate. It's the carbohydrate, especially the simple ones, the white fluffy bread, muffins, the cakes, the sugar and the coffee, right? And even still all grains. I don't care if it's whole wheat, whole wheat toast, the good stuff. That's what we're supposed to eat. Whole grain. Well, all grains, all grains are, are massive insulin producers. Same thing with things like white potatoes, starches, right? You want to focus more on your fibrous vegetables as a base because fiber doesn't tend to induce these insulin surges. A nice piece of broccoli does not give you a huge insulin surge. And then you want to use, of course, some lean meats. I mean, you might be a vegetarian or a vegan or, you know, have an ethical, you know, concern about certain foods. And I understand that. And, and that's okay, <laughs> of course, but you want to keep those meals as what we call low glycemic as possible, right? A piece of meat is, of course, very low glycemic. It, it, it can create glucose to some degree, but it does so in a very um, slow and, and kind of low-grade way over time as compared to a bowl of jelly bellies, which is going to give you a, a big spike and drop. 
but all of the fibrous veggies are going to also have a nice low glycemic response. The, the notion of the glycemic index, some of you might have heard of this, but you know it, it's important to kind of appreciate, to understand, but it's not typically how we eat, except for maybe some snacks or something. But you know, the glycemic index is, is quite literally just a, um, you know, a breakdown of how foods, individual foods, spike and then drop their blood sugar. So I like to use the example of a bowl of jelly bellies because, hey, I, I really like jelly bellies. I don't eat them very often, but I like them. So let's just say you go hog wild and, you know, you got a bowl of jelly bellies in front of you and you eat the whole damn thing. Delicious. You go through your insulin surge and you're dropped. All right. You just you taxed your system in an inflammatory way, but hey, it's okay. You don't do it very often. Hopefully. But let's just say you also eat at that same time a bowl of broccoli, right? What you just did is you mixed a high glycemic food with a low glycemic food. You added fiber to the jelly bellies in essence. And what that's going to do is it's going to slow the absorption of the glucose from the gut and into the bloodstream to some degree. It's no way to live, mind you, but it's sometimes a nice little hack, a little food hack that you can employ. Um, if you know you're doing something wrong, right? Because what you did in your in your tummy is you kind of made a new food. You made jelly belly broccoli. And jelly belly broccoli just metabolizes different than than jelly beans and jelly bellies by themselves. Um, I'm guilty. My wife makes the best gluten-free waffles on the planet. And I have a particular weakness for waffles. And these gluten-free waffles are better than any uh, regular waffle, I will, I will say. Um, and so I tend to eat them um, with gusto. Now, when I think about it, and when I'm on it, I know what I'm about to do. I know that I'm about to eat these waffles, and I'm about to put a bunch of syrup on it, and it's, it's, there's no good outcome for me in that respect. But while they're being made, if all I can do is reach into the refrigerator and grab a few pieces of broccoli, or what other veggies we have. Maybe some of just lettuce, you know. Um, or if you really want to, you can kind of um, mix up a little fiber drink. And it has nothing to do with pooping. It's just I'm going to maybe consume a little fiber supplement just to populate my stomach with fiber because I'm about to put some waffles down there with syrup, lots of syrup, right, <laughs> like we do. And thank goodness I took the sugar out of my coffee. But um, you get my point, right? So. If ever you look at your meal and you're like, oh man, Dr. Jim's voice is haunting my brain and um, I, I need to get some fiber in because this waffle looks too simple or pancake or muffin, just hack it a little bit, see what you can do. And then talk about changing your diet because we can't be eating waffles, folks. It's not that good for us. Only every once in a while to feed our spirit. So I, I think that that's, that's kind of the important background. Now, there's a few little kind of sides to that and and it's becoming an increasing issue in this society and that is the notion of autoimmune diabetes right we normally think of type 1 autoimmune diabetes as juvenile onset it's, it's classically named juvenile onset interestingly it's the juveniles now that are some of the uh, leading cases of type 2 diabetes, which is adult onset, quote unquote, um, because you've been eating too many waffles and drinking sweet tea and such. So um, it, it's kind of flipping. 
there there's sort of a new um, way of looking at diabetes now. There's there's a condition called late adult diabetes of adulthood. Wait, late onset diabetes of adulthood. <laughs> it's LADA for short. Sorry for the acronym. Anyways, it's a type one autoimmune diabetes case in adults. And that can happen for a lot of reasons. That can happen because of the type two situation that's just kind of gotten so inflammatory and destructive that click, now something happened and now they switch over and are become autoimmune, meaning now they target their pancreas tissue for destruction and they kill it and then they stop producing insulin, right? That's one way. Um, there's other interesting concepts around food cross-reactivity. For example, gluten and dairy protein casein are very, very similar in, in chemical structure. Sometimes the body mistakes the two. So a gluten-sensitive person might also react to dairy or vice versa. But that cross-reactivity, that molecular mimicry, if you will, it, it doesn't stop at just different food proteins. There's also mimicry within our own body. So the pancreas is one of those organs which can easily cross-react with some of these foods. So if somebody has a gluten-sensitivity reaction happening, they might just start attacking, you know, proteins found in the pancreas, which launch them into this kind of adult onset type one. So they might call that one type 1.5, actually, depending on who you ask. Um, type 1.5. It's sort of a mix maybe between type two and type one. And then interestingly, too, in some circles, mostly in neurological circles, Alzheimer's disease, right? Dementia, but taken to an extreme, Alzheimer's disease can be considered diabetes type three, insulin resistance of the brain. Like I said in the very beginning, if we don't get glucose into our cell, that cell falters, that cell dies, that cell doesn't do its job. If we're talking about a cell located in the hippocampus, in the medial temporal lobe of the brain, where all of our memory is processed, especially the short-term to long-term conversion, that's Alzheimer's, the area that goes first. Where did I put my keys? Oh, and then is it, I don't recognize my daughter, right? That's, that's tragic. Blood sugar can lead to this. So if we find this in a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old, we have to start thinking Alzheimer's. We have to start thinking autoimmunity. We have to start thinking depression, anxiety, possible suicide, right? This is how we must think. We can certainly take things like metformin. We can get injections of insulin if we need to. We have things that can save our lives. But if it's gotten to that level, things have gone very, very, very wrong. The system has failed, right? We don't want that to happen. I won't let that happen <laughs> if you're under my care. We will have a serious talk and we'll have to talk about lifestyle change because that's all that gets you out. You have to retune how you live. You have to exercise. You have to change the diet. So I want to close up here so as to not keep you all day, but the blood sugar disorders. I talked about some of the concepts around what you do. you gotta got to lower the carbohydrate load because that's going to lower the insulin surges. That's going to help you be more stable throughout the day, uh, especially if you're incorporating more healthy proteins and healthy fats and, and plenty of plant-based fibers, you know, mountains of fiber. 
provided your gut can handle that. Don't want to jump right into lots of fiber. You'll end up a bloaty, gassy mess, but uh, work up to it. All right. So working with that, making sure that you're eating at a tempo that's that's good for you. And that might take the assistance and the oversight of a medical professional um, to kind of help you find out what, what does work for you. Because it's in some cases, something like intermittent fasting might just be a really great intervention for, you know, a, a diabetic or, you know, a insulin resistance case, but you have to be careful. Sometimes people can crash and we don't want people crashing. And by crashing, I mean, energetically, of course, but I mean, they might just fall flat on their face and faint. And we don't want that to happen. So um, it is important to work with somebody knowledgeable in this, in this area and to go slow and, and steady. So that's the dietary piece in a, in a very, very concise um, nutshell. But you must, must, must be physically active. You have to move, right? Inside of each cell is a mitochondria. And a mitochondria is a little organelle inside the cell that creates our energy. We create what's called ATP. ATP is our primary fuel of the cell. We make ATP out of glucose typically. And in other cases, in rare cases like ketosis, we make them out of ketones from fats. But 99% of the time, we are in a glucose-dependent physiology and we are burning glucose and transforming um, them into ATP that happens in the mitochondria. We need more mitochondria. We need newer and healthier mitochondria. We don't want old, jacked, you know, dead mitochondria that aren't functioning because they're starved. Uh, we have to do that with activity. Whatever cell that is, if it's a muscle cell, you must move the muscle. You have to. You will start to build more mitochondria, which will make the cell hungrier for, for glucose, which will tell the cell, send out more insulin receptors to the surface because we need glucose. We have too many mitochondria now. We need glucose. And so what happens then? All of a sudden, your energy gets better. Now you have more gusto. You can go to the gym, but you can actually crush it. You know, and it's, you're not going to suffer from it. Um, you're going to start to thrive, and you're going to become glucose sensitive, right? Insulin sensitive, which is what you want. You want to have a nice response to insulin. Open up those cells, drag the glucose in, burn it into ATP, and thrive. If that's a brain cell, you have clarity. You have cognitive power. You have longevity. You stave off dementia. Right? So you must exercise. You must reduce the carbohydrates. And in some cases, you must take either the pharmaceutical interventions or and or the nutraceutical interventions. There is plenty published in the medical literature. For example, metformin is one of the most popular pharmaceutical interventions for things like insulin resistance, especially in the early phases before somebody's dependent on insulin. And metformin basically works by helping sensitize the desensitized insulin receptor. Just helps to kind of make it work a little bit better. And some people are even using metformin as just sort of a wellness and like longevity concept anyways, and like the anti-aging movement. So irrespective of blood sugar issues, they take at least a small dose of metformin to help keep their bodies very sensitive to insulin and therefore thrive. I'm not sure I agree with that approach 100%, but I'm not 100% against it either. Um, all I wanted to make a point of here was there is a compound called berberine, natural compound. And the literature demonstrates that berberine can work as well as metformin, right? So 
take your pick, right? You can you can do something like berberine and lower your carbohydrates and be active and have a very, very good response and potentially find your food sensitivities, make it even better. So, or you can talk to your doctor and, and see what they have. But I would like to talk more in the future about some of the medication classes and uh, you know their strengths and their weaknesses because I think it's important for us to know these things. Um, and then maybe at the same time do a comparison of some of the nutraceutical approaches as well. I, I think that might be interesting and helpful um, as I move forward with this podcast, right? This is a free flowing thing for me. I don't have notes. I, I'm not scripted. I, I speak what comes up in my, my mind for you. And I think what's most important as I draw off my 20 plus years of, of clinical experience. So um, I do hope that you find that helpful and interesting. And uh, I really do look forward to sharing more in, in the coming podcast. So thank you for your attention. And I, I, uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Take care now. Bye-bye.